You're listening to episode 128 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? A huge thank you to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 Cups of Tea. I know it's a bit of a tricky process to get through all the steps, and it means so much to us that you took the time. I'm not exactly sure how, but I hear that the combination of having our listeners subscribe to us on iTunes and also leave a rating and a review for our podcast does something to the iTunes algorithm, and it's supposed to help make our podcast more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. A lot of time and love goes into making this podcast and 88 Cups of Tea what it is today. So thank you so much for taking the time to help us grow our community. A special thank you to our listener, AJ Winterbooks, who recently rated us five stars and wrote, Such an inspiring podcast. I always listen to these podcasts at work and I come out of them feeling so inspired. I'm working on my novel that I hope to be my debut, and this podcast reminds me that I can accomplish anything. What I love most about this podcast is the fact that I don't have to worry about spoiling the books for myself. This focuses on their craft, and I adore that. The community from this podcast also goes to show what an inspiring show this is. Yin connects writers and readers, and it makes me feel like the writing community isn't a solitary act. Thank you. Thank you so much, AJ Winterbucks, for taking the time to leave such a heartfelt review. I am so happy you found a community with us, and congratulations on working on your novel. That's so exciting. Now on to the next part of our intro. We have a private Facebook group. You'll notice fellow listeners talking about the community that comes along with our podcast, and this is exactly what they're talking about, our Facebook group. It's pretty much a magical place for fellow listeners to connect and hang out. We have weekly threads where we check in with each other about storyteller-related things, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our community-related decisions that help shape the growth and direction of 88 Cups of Tea, which also includes threads where you can request for who you'd love to hear from next on the show, and I also check in with live video catch-ups and book unboxings once in a while. If these are things that jump out at you, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88 Cups of Tea fbgroup. It's so fun in there and I'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the kindest and most caring storytellers. Join us over at 88cupsofteacom fbgroup. Now on to our guest, we have Emily XR Pan on our show. Emily is the New York Times bestselling author of her debut novel, The Astonishing Color of After. She's the founding editor-in-chief of Bodega Magazine and a 2017 artist-in-residence at Jirasi, and she received her MFA in fiction from the NYU Creative Writing Program, where she was a Goldwater Fellow. The Astonishing Color of After received five-starred reviews and is a Wall Street Journal's top 12 picks of the season. Entertainment Weekly described her novel as accessible and compelling, and was also recommended by other popular media outlets like BuzzFeed, Book Riot, Pop Sugar, and a lot more. I first met Emily at a panel discussion that I moderated back in February. The panel was called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, the brainchild of author Stacey Lee and hosted by the New York Public Library. The stories and thoughts that Emily shared at the panel resonated so deeply with me, and I knew right away that it would be such a loss if our 88 Cups of Tea community missed out on them. I'm so happy we have her on the show so we could have the time to dive deeper into her journey and her stories. 
In her episode, we discuss Emily's career paths and why and how she made the shift from business to writing. We dive into the details about the astonishing color of After from the family story that inspired her to write the novel, to discovering the voice in her story, and to her editing process. Emily also shares what it was like to rediscover Taiwan as an adult for the research process of her book. Further into our conversation, we talk about the importance of trusting your instincts when sharing your work with your peers, the role that negative space serves in crafting short stories, and tips on organically marketing your novel. A quick heads up right before we dive in, our call during the interview dropped about four different times and Emily was such a trooper in hopping back on the call with me each time and picking up right where we left off. Our Wi-Fi was being a little funky, so the audio quality may not be as consistent throughout the entire episode, but you'll definitely still be able to hear exactly what we're saying and the content is so good. So make sure you hang tight through the funky audio parts. All right, now let's dive right in. Emily, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, you're kidding. So Emily, let's kick it off and get into how you first fell in love with storytelling. It was literally just the magic of reading and being able to enter into another person's life, mm-hmm. the lives of the characters that I was reading about as a kid. That was really important to me. I was a voracious reader as a child. I knew by the time I was seven years old that I wanted to be an author. When people ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? That was one of my go-to answers was I want to be an author because I knew I wanted to see a book of mine on a shelf in a bookstore, in a library. And so it's been over 20 years in the making of this dream. It's been pretty surreal. I remember that I was really taken by the book Harriet the Spy. Yes. An aspiring writer. And she has her little notebook where she writes down literally everything she observes everywhere she goes, every thought she has about anyone. And that book was so important to me. And I did the exact same thing. As soon as I finished that book, I found myself a brand new notebook that was not being used for any class. And I put my name on it and I wanted to be Harriet. That brings me back to my days. And I remember doing the same exact thing. That book also has such a huge impact on me. From there, I remember in the panel that you mentioned that you also went to business school because we're talking about the ideal, perfect Asian daughter. And you are definitely the daughter my mom would have been very proud of. I know you wanted to be an author at six years old and you knew you want to change that landscape. From there to the time that you ended up getting your MFA in fiction and NYU creative writing program, how were your parents? We all have our own journeys, right? But I feel you and I share a very similar upbringing. So I would love to hear a little bit more about what it was like at home. Growing up, writing was one of my major passions. My other major passion was music. Outside of school, I spent all my time doing music and writing. And I knew very clearly in my head that I wanted to study both of these things in Mm -hmm. school. My parents had been supportive of me doing music because their impression of it was this will help you get into a good college. They understood that I needed to look focused in my college applications. And so they would drive me for hours to orchestra auditions or choir auditions. And they paid so much money for me to take all these lessons from these top teachers They also encouraged my writing because they understood that it was developing important skills. My dad really saw my creativity as a good thing. And my mom herself is a writer. They were actually probably more supportive of that than I think other stereotypical Asian immigrant parents would be. But when the time came to apply to colleges, they were like, no, 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 no. You're not going to go to a school major in creative writing. You're not going to go to a school and major in music. 
those are wildly impractical. And what is due to know that when you finish high school and you go off to college, you're supposed to go the practical route because that's how your life is going to begin. And you need to have this stable life with stable, good income, right? Benefits, and you need to be able to support yourself and support us because part of the Asian culture, most every culture except American is your children grow up and then are responsible for taking care of you through the end of your life financially. People literally have children as an investment in their future. (laughs) So it was a very tumultuous time. A lot of arguments in my house. A lot of my parents being, well, what are you going to do with this? What career do you see coming out of the pursuit of a university program in creative writing or in music? And I'd be like, well, I could teach music. If worse comes to worse, I'll become a high school orchestra teacher or something. My dream with music was really to compose film scores. Oh, wow. always knew that I wanted to write books on the side, but it never seemed writing books could be my primary job. So in my mind, it was always the fantasy books on the side. I would have a main job and I thought that would be any number of things related to music or maybe being an English teacher even. And they were very not into that idea. I don't remember what exactly it was, but my dad sat me down and was like, you know, I think you have a great mind for business. He was like, you're always talking about different editions of books and how books are being merchandised in the stores. And you're always analyzing the price differences of books on various websites on the internet. I think you have a head for business. I found NYU's business program, which is very highly ranked. And I knew that it was important for it to be highly ranked not for me, but for my parents. They had to be satisfied with my choice of school to go to. NYU also has a strong music program. And NYU also has a strong creative writing program. And so I bet I could study business there. I could go there under the guise of studying business. So smart. And actually study all these things that I wanted. Well, it was smart in theory, but not in real application because NYU's business program is so intense. Most colleges, when you are a freshman and you're going through your core curriculum, even though you have your major, your core curriculum is still fairly comprehensive. You have to take a certain number of English classes and other subjects. At NYU Stern, your core core curriculum is really business focused. I can count on one hand the classes that I took that were required outside the business school. Oh, wow. And so it was very, very sharply focused. And I did not enjoy my experience at all. If you needed any proof that I could have done so much better in any field other than business, all of my business classes, I tanked except for the ones that were creatively involved. I got A's in all my marketing classes. I got A's in all my writing classes, including the business writing classes. But anything else, I was terrible. I would read this textbook and be like, oh, no logical. And then I would feel like I totally got it. And then I would go in and take a midterm. And I would have completely tanked the midterm. Something did not click in my brain. And that was pattern in like my economics classes, my finance classes. It was so clear I did not belong in the business school. Did your parents know this? And did they know how much you did not enjoy class? My dad is one of those parents who really believes his child is capable of excelling at literally anything. And so my dad was very much, no, you got this. You're really great at this. You can do it. And my mom, who had, I think, more of an understanding of just how 
much I was struggling emotionally with being in business school. I think my dad was a little bit in denial. It's funny because now, years after the fact, she'll be like, I don't know how you survived that school. (laughs) I think her saying that now is already pretty healing. I give you props for even getting in and even making it through because my mom got accepted to NYU Stern, but she ended up going to Baruch because she had to help support her younger sisters through college as well. Wow. Financially, it was a bit more difficult. My mom thought me being born here would be easily able to get into NYU Stern because she came from Malaysia. So she's like, you know, we worked our butts off, so you have no excuse. So then she was expecting to push me through that whole business route, what you had to go through. But in the end, I just couldn't even get to the point of being accepted. (laughs) So my mom ended up being like, you know what? I don't know what to do with this kid. Like, I really don't. If I was able to even get in, I think I would be failing wonderfully. Oh my God. My my friends could tell that I didn't belong. Like, my friends would randomly look at me and be like, why are you here? They'd be like, why aren't you in Tish? Because I was still big on performing then and I was still very, very doing creative things and they would see me perform and be like why are you in the business school when all you want to do is music and writing is it right after that you jumped into the mfa in fiction from nyu i did a creative writing minor your parents knew that and they were fine with that yeah they were like whatever as long as you have practical major and as long as you're not pursuing anything outside of that and you're just doing it for fun sure I pitched it as this will make me more marketable for jobs because they'll see that I have writing skills. So strategic. I love it. Anyone listening to this podcast who is not Asian would be like, why did you need your parents' approval on what you minored in? Our parents will forever treat us children who need their permission until we're 90 years old. At NYU, this is really silly, but in order to get a minor, all you needed was four classes. It's not a huge commitment at all. You take four classes and that's enough to make a minor. I remember there were the most fired up I'd been in my entire college experience. I had never been so devoted to a class as I was to my creative writing classes. I spent way more time preparing for those classes than I did for any of my business school classes, even the ones where I was struggling so hard in that I had to read every chapter of an accounting textbook 16 times. Earlier in my creative writing minor, I had encountered people being like, yeah, I think I might do an MFA in creative writing. And I was like, who would do an MFA in creative writing? My brain was like, that's so wildly impractical. What would you do a degree like that? I don't think I could even begin to imagine looking into that process because it just sounded so wildly unapplicable to my life. Then by the end of my creative writing minor, when I was taking my last class, I was like, I can't believe this is it. I can't believe it's just going to end here. And this is all I get. That was when I started to be like, I do want to do an MFA because I want to have that community. I want to be immersed and surrounded by people who are reading novels and who are talking creatively and talking about the things that they're creating and the characters they're making and the stories they're trying to tell. And I really felt desperate for more of that. And so I actually graduated from NYU a semester early. So I finished at the end of 2009 and I applied for MFA programs that same fall. So the same time I was graduating, I applied for MFA programs, which wouldn't have me enrolling until another year. When I was setting out to apply, my parents were like, what are you doing? You just finished your business degree, you're on the path to launch an excellent career. Yes, why are you wasting time? It was what they thought. Yeah, and they really were not enthused about it. And I I sort of mentioned that I wanted to apply to MFA programs just as like a courtesy. 
Yes. But in my brain, I was like, you don't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So like, calm down. I will pay for it myself. I'll figure it out. Whatever I'll do, I'll do it. I'll figure it out myself. And so I kind of purposely stopped mentioning the whole thing to them. I did let them know that I had sent out applications just so they wouldn't have like an unpleasant surprise if yeah. I magically got in somewhere. But getting into an MFA program is kind of like winning the lottery. It's so subjective. I only applied to a few programs, like programs that I knew I was really excited about and invested in. So when you're applying to so few programs and they're programs that a lot of people are applying to, it really is just, it's its a total crapshoot. Mm-hmm. So I sent those off and then I started working full time. I was working at a tech company doing online advertising and I was completely miserable in my job. So when you were saying you were doing the online advertising, what was your actual role and responsibility? Is that where you were applying your business skills of marketing? I had three job offers when I graduated, which was very lucky because this was during like the recession. Oh, wow. Damn. Belated congrats. (laughs) It's funny. One of them was a job that I had loved interning for this company so much that I kept staying on. So I had actually interned for them for a solid year. Wow. And then they offered me a position and the salary they offered just felt too low. Okay. I feel like people who go to Stern feel this pressure to take the highest job offer they can get. Mm. Even though I knew I loved that job and I knew I was good at it, I felt like I had to turn it down. I got another job offer from L'Oreal, which had been like my dream company to work for, but their offer came in like literally right as I had already accepted for the startup company. And I didn't feel like it was a good idea to like renege on my very first job offer. When you're that young and you have such a limited resume, it feels like all I have is my word. My credit stands for a lot. And so I literally just accepted this offer. So I'm going to stick with it. And they were coincidentally the highest paying one too. And so I was like, it'll be fine. I'll learn some new stuff. It was marketing. I was building online campaigns for clients. And so it was account management, but it also was numbers based in a way that really did not resonate with me. It was one of those cultures that was very tech bro-y. Oh, okay. So you're like one of the few women and they're just... Yeah. And it... It was one of those places where I really felt like I didn't belong. Like I was this bookworm who, you know, I was constantly carrying around literature that I felt like I should have read in my college days, but was sort of cheated of because of my business core curriculum instead. (laughs) So like I was catching up on things and reading Anna Karenina and all the people around me were reading like Rich Dad, Poor Dad or like Mm -hmm. books on how to create your own startup and things like that. I was in an office full of guys who were just always talking about their workout regimen and what protein (laughs) they were taking and how much creatine they were taking. Sort of a mismatch of personalities. And I just- huge disconnect. Yeah, I very clearly did not belong. And I didn't enjoy the work I was doing at all. The hours I was working prevented me from being able to do anything creative. And so it felt like it was like draining my soul. I reached a point- where I was just so incredibly miserable. I was so miserable the whole time, actually, that my husband, then boyfriend, had no idea what my job even was. You never talked about it at home with him? I did not want to talk (gasps) about it. I did not want to think about it. I was so miserable. I'm very close to my parents, so I call my parents every night. And 
I would go home from this job and call them and just cry on the phone. <gasps> Emily, I'm so sorry. Everyone around me was very concerned about me. Like my friends had no idea what my job was because I didn't want to talk about it. It was just a job that was such a terrible mismatch for me that I was absolutely miserable there. Oh my God. And then I remember getting the call that I had gotten into the Vermont College of Fine Arts, which was my top MFA program that is a non-traditional program. It's a distance learning program. So I had applied to a couple traditional MFA programs and a couple low residency MFA programs. Vermont College of Fine Arts was the first one I heard back from. It was my top choice low res program. And they called me to tell me I got in and I literally ran into a conference room and sobbed because it was validation that I had gotten. And also it was this mixed feeling of, am I still even a writer? Like I haven't been able to write anything in a couple of months because I've been so drained. But I still, at that point, couldn't quit my job because a low residency program is meant to exist around like, a full-time job. There's not that much funding for it. So I, I couldn't, I definitely couldn't afford to do it unless I had a job. It still didn't feel like a way out exactly. And then a month later, NYU called me to tell me I got in and that they were offering me a fellowship. That was suddenly my like magical way out of this misery. And I was aggressively applying for all sorts of marketing jobs at this point, trying to get out of this role. I remember how great my internships felt and I just need to get into a role that's a better match for me. But again, it was a recession, so it was really hard to find a job. And so when I got that call from NYU, it was funny because my parents had watched me be so miserable. They probably read, please go to the MFA, please. We just want our daughter to be happy. I think they needed that to realize that for yeah. themselves. They did like a 180. They mm -hmm. had gone from shitting all over the idea of an MFA program to being like, yes, quit your job now. <laughs> That's amazing. And I was like, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> if I'm going to go back to school and be a student again, I need money to survive off of. And so I need to work until school starts, which is not for like another several months. And so I really forced myself to stick through that job all the way until right before the semester was about to begin. Oh my God. Can I jump in really quick and ask you yeah. about the L'Oreal? Was it like a similar role that you had in this startup or was it something completely different? I think it was more like, it was more creative marketing. I mean, this startup was like, it was um, search engine marketing. It was oh, like, like SEO stuff. Yeah. And it was, oh. yeah, it was SEM, which is a, a little bit different from SEO, but they go hand in oh, hand. Okay. The job at the startup did not feel creative at all. And I had to deal with terrible clients and I had to deal with bosses who are so intense. Like I developed carpal tunnel at that job. And I, what? one of my bosses had carpal tunnel so badly, but had put off surgery for a year because he was so intense about his job. And so he had no sympathy for me. <gasps> oh my God. Ariel, I think, I don't totally remember the details now, but it was a more, I'm pretty sure it was a more creative role. Okay. So the reason why I asked that about the L'Oreal, what that position was, because I'm like, if that was the route that you went, I don't know if all these amazing things would have happened with the writing, because maybe you would have felt so excited in the L'Oreal because that's something that you were kind of pumped about before when you applied for yeah, it. That had a dream job. Yeah. That yeah. had been a dream job of mine while I was in college was to work for L'Oreal. But but even if I hadn't been 100% in love with it, I think if it had been at all tolerable, I would have felt obligated to stay. I would yes. have felt like I have a career growing here. 
So I need to just stick with it. Yep. For me, I'm thankful that you ended up getting that tech job to then be like, hell no, F this. I'm going into the MFA. Um, so from there, your parents were super yeah. supportive and they ended up being like, you know what? We want you to go to the MFA. Just quit as soon as you can. But then you had to stay till uh, basically when class was starting. And then from there, yeah. when you mentioned you also got a fellowship, does that mean that you had to submit work of yours and then they base it off of, I guess, their taste in what they wanted to see? We had to send in samples of our writing to even get into the program. Gotcha. So they picked students for the program based on the merit of the writing and then also offer a fellowship. So yeah, they had already seen my writing. I wouldn't have gotten in without sending in a writing sample. Gotcha. And now quick question about the writing sample. Because you were busy in NYU Stern School of Business, was it your writing samples from those four classes that you took for the minor while you were at Stern? Yeah, it was. And I had I had a couple teachers who were very gracious about Aww. looking over multiple drafts. And I had classmates who were very generous about doing so too. So I had a lot of support from my undergrad experience. That's awesome. That makes so much sense. I love that. I love how that worked out so perfectly too. Yeah. That's going to be really helpful for listeners. Some of them have mentioned that they are going through a rough time with their own jobs. Even hearing this puts a little ease in their heart knowing that they're not alone in their journey and there could be yeah. <laughs> much brighter days coming. I would also love to shift this into the astonishing color of after how that story came about. And was this something that you were developing in the MFA program for fiction? Yeah, I started writing it in 2010. One of my very first workshops at NYU was a novel writing workshop. And so I started writing this book for that workshop. I knew that I wanted to write a book in honor of my grandmother mm -hmm. capturing her like wild life stories. And so that was how this began. And I wrote quite a lot of pages while in the MFA program, but they just weren't really working and I couldn't figure out why. And then I paused and set this book aside and wrote a different novel that I edited a bajillion times and queried agents with and got a lot of full manuscript requests and got a lot of positive feedback, but nobody offered representation. And so then I wrote another novel. And then in between all this, I kept coming back to the story that I had started at the beginning of my MFA program. My teacher for that novel workshop, Chuck Wachtel, was very supportive and he very much believed in the story. Like there was something about it that he could see that I, I felt like I couldn't. Whenever he saw me after that, he would be like, how is that book going? There's something about that book. He could like see the spark and I kept being ready to just shelve it forever. But I feel like it was his, his belief and his encouragement kept making me think, well, Maybe he's right. Maybe there is something that I'm not figuring out yet. So he sort of made me question it more. And so I then tried rewriting it many different ways, like rewriting from scratch, brand new casts of characters, brand new premises some of the time. The only thing that was ever consistently there was the character of the grandmother mm -hmm. and her life story which is, again, based off of my grandmother. Mm -hmm. But everything, all the other pieces around that kept changing. And I tried rewriting it. Originally, it was like adult literary, and it was historical fiction. And I tried rewriting it in like modern day times. And then I tried rewriting it as young adult. I tried as like a magical adult novel. I even tried middle grade, a very fantastical middle grade. And then it was in 2015, literally, I sat down January 2nd with a blank document and the opening pages poured out 
and they are largely unchanged. Like the opening pages of the finished book wow. is very much the same as what I poured out. The rest of the book was like wildly revised and reworked. But those opening pages, I'm one of those people who I really need to get the beginning down solid. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's kind of like working your way up to the peak of a roller coaster. In every project that I work on, I found that I need to climb up to the peak of that roller coaster where all the momentum can start rolling. And I struggled for so many years to find the right characters and the right premise and the right voice. And in 2015, I finally grasped it and it all just came out from there. And then that at the end of the year, I signed with my agent. And then at the beginning of the next year, we sold the book. And then I revised it even more after that. I'm big on revising. Okay, so now when you're saying that you had to go through all of this to kind of refine your voice in a way, how much of an influence were other people around you to help you shape that and to find that right voice that was perfect for your novel? You know, I was very bashful about sharing my writing Mm -hmm. during that time in a way that I hadn't been in a long time. Like as a teenager, I wrote a lot of stories and I shared them with my friends and I had friends who were writers and we would swap stories and critique them for each other. And then in college, I had my writing workshop. And then in my MFA program, I had my writing workshops and those peers. But after the MFA program, I felt bashful all over again. And I didn't want to share my work with anyone. I kind of wanted to just create in this cave with just myself, which at times is very lonely. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like I sort of needed it for this book. I needed to develop the confidence Mm -hmm. to trust in my own words and my own voice again. And when you're when you're in a workshop, sometimes you lose sight of that because you're so eager to take everyone's feedback that you start to suppress your own instincts. And so I think I needed that time to rediscover my own instincts and to trust my own instincts again, because I had sort of done too many workshops. I'd sort of broken my own instincts. So I I didn't share my work during that time as I was rewriting. I just kept in my mind the encouragement from my peers because, you know, people would, people from my MFA workshop would see me and they would ask me, like, are you still working on that novel? What's going on with it? And their interest and the interest of that teacher, Chuck, uh, that really helped to sort of keep a spark alive for me. Um, But the actual writing itself was very, very private until I reached a point where I felt like I could start to look for feedback. And even then I felt really bashful. And um, I have this really amazing friend, Nova Ransuma, who mentored me during that time. And she was very first people I showed that book to. And I also that same year, found myself a couple critique partners because I was trying to push myself to be less bashful. And so I had spent these years working away at this book. And then in 2015, I finally, as I finally was solidifying what the book was, I also finally started sharing it. And so Mm -hmm. I shared it with this critique partner, Joanna Truman. We randomly connected on the internet and she's like, we're like perfect for each other as far as critique partners go. It's kind of bizarrely magical. Are we talking about like Twitter? There's this author who always puts together like a critique partner love connection on her blog and people can just come and respond and try to connect with each other. And so Joanna and I found each other 
through this blog. And it was just the most magical connection. It just worked. There are a lot of critique partner connections that happen like that. I don't know how successful most of them are, but this was like bizarrely perfect. Like our brains are just perfect for each other. And my friend Aisha Saeed and I connected via Twitter. We became critique partners because of our Twitter friendship. We had met before at a trade conference, a publishing conference, but our friendship was really solidified via Twitter. And so I shared my work with them and I shared my work with Nova Rensuma, who was a brilliant mentor who really helped me get this book into a much better shape. And it was after that that I started querying agents and then my agent became a soundboard for me. My agent also has this magical telepathic understanding of what's happening in my brain. Damn, I love that story. That was so good. Before, (laughs) I, I wanna ask like so many more questions about your story, your research process. But before that, I'm going to ask you to give us a snapshot of what The Astonishing Color of After is about. It's about a girl named Lee Chen Sanders, who is half Asian and half white, who has just lost her mother to suicide. And Lee believes that when her mom died, her mom turned into a bird. And this bird is communicating to Lee and telling her she needs to go to Taiwan. And so Lee believes that she'll find her mother, the bird, in Taiwan. And she's never gone there before, but she makes the trip. She connects with her maternal grandparents for the very first time. There's a language barrier, so they can't communicate with each other. And she starts to dig up family secrets via these magical things that are happening. At the same time, Lee has to reconcile the fact that in the same moment her mother was dying, Lee was in her best friend's basement on his couch kissing him for the first time. They'd been best friends for ages and she'd been harboring this more than crush on him. She'd been harboring these really intense feelings. So this peaked at this really intense moment that she finally kissed him and maybe something was about to happen. And then she goes home and discovers that her mother has just died. So this terrible event drives apart Lee and her best friend Axel. And it's the healing that allows them to start to come back together again. So this whole book is about love in many different facets, all the different facets of love that are out there. And it's also about figuring out who you are yourself. And it's also about that time when as a teenager, you start to realize that your parents have lives that you didn't even realize. They had lives before you came about and they had all these secrets and histories that make them a whole person that's more than just your parent and caretaker. Oh my gosh, I love this. It's giving me chills. I've been working on a story myself that's also been inspired by my grandma that I've been struggling with the voice for a very long time. And that's something that my writing workshop teacher was telling me The issue was that I was writing for my grandmother's voice rather than my own voice and that I should be searching for my grandma through my own voice. When I read your summary of The Astonishing Color of After, I was just like, yes, it hits close to home even more than most other stories. I'm so happy to know that there are more stories out there. We're not all a monolith. We all have different stories that are also all universal. So thank you for putting this work out there. I very much appreciate that you did this story. And now I know that you mentioned the story was inspired by your grandma. I usually ask listeners if there's one incident that prompted them to write their book. But for yours, was there one specific story that your grandma shared with you that inspired you to want to take on your novel? Was this something that you were developing in the MFA program for fiction? Yeah, I started writing it in 2010. One of my very first workshops at NYU was a novel writing workshop. And so I started writing this book 
book for that workshop, I knew that I wanted to write a book in honor of my grandmother Mm -hmm. capturing her wild life stories. The story that has always really stuck in my brain was that my grandmother was sold as a baby to another family. The idea is that daughters are not as valuable as sons. Sons retain the family name. Sons grow up and pass down your legacy, mm-hmm. but daughters eventually marry off and they become a part of a different family and they no longer belong to your family. They pay money for your daughters to be married off. Patriarchal bullshit. Yep. <laughs> and my grandmother's family was struggling for money. And they were like, why would we raise this girl who is going to take up all these resources? And then also we have to pay to marry her off when she grows up when we could just sell her and have that money. And so they sold her to another family who actually sold their own daughter in order to have money to purchase my grandmother. And they purchased my grandmother with the intention that when she came of age, she would marry their son. So they raised her as their adoptive daughter and her adoptive brother was also her betrothed. So she grew up in this environment. And then when she actually came of age, her adoptive mother was like, you know what? I know he's terrible. You don't have to marry him. Her adoptive father had passed away when she was quite young and she had dropped out of school to spend all her time picking tea leaves on the mountain to bring in income for the family. And so she'd been a huge and important part of this family. And she'd been the model daughter. And so her mom was very appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. And then not very long after she came of age and was the betrothal was broken, she was free to live. This guy came up the mountain knocking on everyone's doors and he knocked on her door and he said, 19 years ago, we sold my baby sister and I'm trying to find her again. And it was her brother. And so he reconnected with her family. She went down the mountain with him. She went to Taipei. Back then, all you had to do to claim a plot of land was just go and be like, this land is now mine. I declare this land to be mine. So my family had claimed a plot of land and they had built a hotel and the hotel was thriving. So they had money again and they wanted to bring this long lost daughter back. And so she went down into the city now a grown woman and started working at this hotel. And a lot of other wild things happened after that, but that was always in my brain that was so cinematic. There was so much I wanted to explore. And so I originally started writing the book as a historical fiction piece starting in 1927 in the northern mountain of Taiwan. And it was about my grandmother and about her life and how all of this began. Oh my gosh, thank you for sharing that. I remember when you shared a little bit of that story at the panel, I was like, oh my God, no, you can't stop here. How are we limited with time? You need to tell us more. So thank you so much for going through that. I'm so happy you shared that. You have no idea. What really jumps out at me, and especially right now, because when you're going through your own things, you self-project on my own end. When I've been working on trying to find out my own grandma's story in Malaysia, I'm talking to my grandpa, finding out stories about where she was going through Singapore, getting through to him into Tringanu and all the way up north of Malaysia. I'm looking on the maps. I've been to Malaysia. It does not look the same. So for me, because that's something that I've been struggling with, and one of my excuses is because I'm feeling stuck and I don't want to describe inaccurately and bullshit my way through because I don't want to disrespect or mess with what the reality was. I know Taiwan too, because my dad's Taiwanese, and he was saying that it's not how it used to be anymore. 
how are you able to go through that, but also not let it hinder you like me? I had run into the exact same issue when I started writing it. I got really overwhelmed really fast by the historical research and uh, by the fact that the setting was completely different. I mean, the place where my grandmother grew up looks nothing like how it did when she was a child. And so I was doing the same thing. I was like, do I invent this bucolic setting the way I've imagined it in my brain? It's just not going to be accurate, which there was something about that that didn't sit right with me. And so I very quickly reframed the story to be from the perspective of a modern day teenager who was this woman's granddaughter who was hearing all her stories for the first time. So probably the very first attempt at a draft of this book tried to be from my grandmother's perspective. She was like the main character. And very quickly, I realized it wasn't working. And that was how I introduced the character of this teenage daughter and who lives in a world that I easily access. There are still moments of the book that are in Taiwan in that time. But because they're so small, they're like little capsules, I'm able to offer details that I've heard about from either my grandmother or from my mother and things that I found online, I'm able to offer just enough details for it to feel like you can imagine this sprawling landscape, but without having the entire book be like an exploration of what 1927 in Taiwan like. You just thought of all this yourself. I know you had your teacher at the MFA, but this sounds like this is something that you just approached and figured out by yourself. It was like a trial and error thing. It's one of those things where now, hindsight, I can talk about it and sound so much smarter. But in the moment, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. In the moment, I was just like, maybe this will fix things. I have so much admiration for you for even being open to seeing different options and different avenues of exploring how to approach it. I was writing from my grandmother's point of view originally. It's funny how yours changed to a young girl's point of view because of the geography. My teacher was telling me wasn't about the geography. She was saying my voice wasn't strong enough as my grandma's. She said, it's more so you don't even know your grandma's voice, which is true because I've never met my grandma. I wasn't allowed to because she was at a Buddhist temple. So she became a nun and wasn't allowed to see us, unfortunately. And my teacher's like, yours is so obvious that you don't know your grandma's voice, but you know your own voice. And it only was because of my teacher saying that or else I would have never even thought about looking at this through my voice. And that's why I have to say, damn girl, listen, you are badass for even finding that on your own without even any guidance. And hashtag bow down. Go, Emily. I think you figured it out at some point. Probably your teacher just helped you arrive there a little faster. Uh, You're very nice. Thank you. But no, I don't think it would have. But yes, if you don't mind, let me wrap up with listener questions. Gilly Siegel, she said, here's a question for Emily, and she loves your work. Given your creation of foreshadow, and this is just jumping out a little bit, what different writing muscles do you think writers need to exercise to write short stories compared with novels? How would you recommend a writer who doesn't typically write short stories go about giving it a try? Oh, wow. What a question. I think short stories are sneakily a lot harder than novels because you have to contain so much in a story. I also think that the way to go about it is really to just start writing them, to literally just dive in, come up with an idea, challenge yourself to really make it self-contained. I think it's a really good practice, even shooting for a specific word count. If you're targeting an online magazine or maybe a print magazine that has word count limits, it's really good as an exercise 
to challenge yourself to write a story within the confines of that word count because it forces you to really slice down the things that don't matter. It really taught me so much when I was spending a lot of time writing short stories and submitting them out to publications. I'm one of those people who I'm super verbose. Everything I write tends to be really long. And if I set out to write a 20-page story, it's going to end up being an 80-page story. That's always how it works for me. What you start to realize the more you practice shaving it down is that there's a lot that you think is important on the page that is actually not necessary in the story. The work of you writing it has influenced things around it so much that even when you cut out those little elements here and there, they're still present in the story without explicitly being on the page. And I think that's a very important skill to hone. I think it's really crucial to be able to take away and let the negative space speak for itself. And so short stories are really excellent practice for that because when you then write a novel and you start to bring in that same muscle, taking away things that are not so necessary, but letting them have done the work in other aspects of the story, you end up with something so much more tightly crafted and that feels so much more fully realized, even though those words are no longer on the page itself. That was awesome. Now I'm going to go into the second question from Catherine Locke. She said, OMG, what an amazing guest. And she's so excited. Catherine was at our panel that we did in New York City, and she says she remembers from that panel that you mentioned for The Astonishing Color of After, it didn't originally exist in that structure. So what was the process to rebuilding the book? Oh, gosh. The book has changed so many times in so many different ways. As I mentioned before, I tried rewriting it many different ways, many different genres, many different formats even. When we sold the book, it was actually two timelines braided together. I realized that wasn't quite working the way I'd intended it. I ended up making the decision that I wanted to completely strip out the fantasy world. But all these things had happened in the fantasy world that were really crucial to the story. So I basically had to rewrite all of that from scratch, weaving all that stuff into the real world. The actual physical logistics of it involved me color coding everything for days. And I had color coded index cards. I have a wall in my bedroom that I keep empty so that I can stick index cards up on the wall and move threads around and be able to visualize how all the pieces of the book are fitting together and be able to visualize how each individual story's arc works. It was kind of a nightmarish process. How long do you remember that entire process? process of rearranging, color coding. We had sold the book at that point. That was in my first big revision. I think I spent like three months doing that. Oh my goodness. It was probably two to three months. It was really intense. That part of it was really a full-time job. How are you staying sane? Is this when yoga comes in? Yeah, a lot of yoga and a lot of meditation. Oh my gosh. I mean, I don't have the healthiest practices. Like I tend to get up and work and then just work until two in the morning. I don't recommend that. For sure. Thank you so much for bringing us into that. And let's wrap it up with one last question from our listener, Anika Naeem. She says she feels like you've been killing the marketing game. Your pre-order campaign is just amazing and your Instagram is stellar. So she would love to know more about how you approached marketing as an author and if or how you collaborated with your publishing team. That's an excellent question. My background, as we sort of mentioned before, was in marketing. So I feel a lot of my instincts from the stuff that I've studied over the years definitely 
helps a little bit. People like to ask this question a lot. I do think though, that even without the marketing background, the most important thing is being genuine, especially for online marketing, being genuine and doing stuff that I really enjoy myself. I am totally obsessed with Twitter. I'm totally obsessed with Instagram. And that obsession feeds into me being able to organically produce content. That resonates with people. I'm not there being like, hmm, what am I going to do to advertise the book today? I'm thinking, oh, well, I had a really fun time signing books in my publisher's office. And so I want to share the fun by showing photos that documented me being in the office. You know, a lot of it is being genuine because if you don't enjoy your social media interactions and you're just on there posting just because you think it helps you sell books, people are going to sense that. And if people sense that, It's not going to work. They immediately view you as being spammy and over-promotion-y. There's this fine line between being a real human and also using my platforms that I developed as a real human to boost my book. And then there's the part of it where, you know, I, I can't only be doing promotion. I have to be fully myself and be open to engagement. I will say that the the whole being genuine and doing stuff you like thing, that applies to my pre-order campaign too. A lot of author friends have been asking me, oh, how did you do this? I feel overwhelmed by the idea of a pre-order campaign, but I feel like I need to be doing it. It's a lot of work to do a pre-order campaign. Mm-hmm. I'm really nerdily into all of it. I have a lot of fun making promo. I have a lot of fun designing things. Whoa, so you're designing all the stuff? Yeah, so like I painted my own <gasps> painting, kind of like a fan art type thing, and I made that into a print and I designed <gasps> my own sticker. What? Did you also design the pin? The pin is gorgeous. I worked with a, an amazing designer, Hafsa. I gave her the concept. I told her I wanted the quote. I told her I wanted the feather and I wanted them to be integrated because I didn't want all of my spirit or stuff to look the same. And if I created all of it myself, it would all have the same look. And I wanted it to be a little more fun and a little more varied. So I also had my husband make a letterpress bookmark for myself. (gasps) So, so that also added some variation to have other people be creatively involved too. That's all stuff that I find really fun. But for people who don't find the making of promo itself fun. And for people who don't find like my friends will tell you, I love shipping presents out. It's like one thing that brings me so so much delight. And so pre-order goodies have been really delightful for me. But if it's not your thing, if it's only going to create stress, I don't really think it's worth it because it's not a genuine and fun and organic part process. You are killing it, girl. Everything that you say rings true, but also I'm having a look at your Instagram and shots of your book with the flowers. Those are gorgeous. Did you take those? I did. You're so talented. Thanks. I mean, I'm just very visually inspired. And so I'm really into flat lays. Probably if I were an author, I would be a bookstagrammer. Or an art director. (laughs) I want to have a lot of control over visual things. This is another job in itself. It's crazy. You know you gotta go, and I'm thanking you so much for your time. Let me wrap it up with one more thing. Your recommended book. If you have one that you could share with us, whether it's about craft of writing or something that changed your perspective of storytelling, please share with us so we know what to check out for ourselves. Oh gosh. A book that I was assigned to me in high school and that I have revisited again and again to help really make my sentences pack their maximum punch is On Writing Well by William Zinsser. And it's just 
really, really good for prose level stuff. It just really helps you identify very quickly what's working in a sentence, what is unnecessary in a sentence. And I recommend that book to anybody who is struggling to write cleanly. That would be a craft book a sentence level craft book that I would recommend. I also want to put in a plug for a book I'm reading right now that I'm adoring, which is Picture Us in the Light by Kelly Lloyd Gilbert. It comes out next month. How funny. I'm literally talking to her in one hour. Oh my God, please tell her that. I think she's a genius. And she's phenomenal. Everyone needs to read Picture Us in the Light. I don't understand how she isn't super famous and a household name. I really don't. That is so sweet. I need to tell her. I'm going to let her know. Are you guys friends? We have met. We're actually doing an event together to launch her book next month. Congrats to you both. That's exciting. And new friends. Hooray. Let us know where to find you on Twitter so everybody can say hi or on any of your social media. Yeah, my handle for all my social media platforms is the same. It's all E-X-R-P-A-N. So E as in Emily, X as in Xylophone, R as in Reed, and then Pam like Peter Pan. That's on Twitter. That's on Instagram. Thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate you. Thank you so much again. And I'm so excited for you. And I could not be happier with your story out there in the world. I'm very, very excited. So much. This is so great. And that wraps up our episode with Emily XR Pan. Emily, thank you so much for that inspiring conversation. I loved having you on the show. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please say hi to Emily over on Twitter at EXRPAN. For a list of resources mentioned in her episode, head over to Emily's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Emily dash XR dash Pan. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.